Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So welcome to a chilly themed episode of the Science of Sports with myself, Mike Finch. And as usual, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker, but we have a few guests which we're going to be introducing throughout the day today, well, throughout the podcast today, and focus very much on the physiology of a sport that's of sports that we don't really talk about very often here on our podcast, and that is the winter sports of cross-country skiing. And we talked about alpine skiing. We talked about, uh, first up, we're going to be talking about uh, ice hockey, um, but uh, let's just let's just run through we're not going to talk about all the winter sports because there are literally hundreds of them out there but we we decided to talk first of all to a specialist in the ice hockey space tell us about uh why we chose tommy <laughs> well partly convenience because i know tommy uh, <laughs> it always helps yes and i was i was doing an interview with him the other day tommy is a lecturer and a researcher at the karolinska institute in stockholm which is one of the great academic institutes for including many things but sports science and he also works as a consultant for Swedish ice hockey and that came up in conversation and I said to him hey why don't we talk about ice hockey and he said it's a fascinating sport because ice hockey is a sprint activity buried in an endurance event yeah. because they are and you'll hear this from Tommy you're on the ice for 30 to 60 seconds and then you get a couple of minutes then you do it again and again and again for an hour and so there's some really interesting physiology there, and I thought it'd be interesting to ask him to talk about that. Because as you say, I, I mean, we I saw snow for the first time when I was 25, <laughs> and I've skied once in my life, and it didn't go well. But I love the Winter Olympics. I'm absolutely fascinated by them. It's it's honestly the best 10 days I have every couple of years because I just there is a there's a novelty fascination and a technical fascination with these sports. They are so interesting to me, and so. I said, Tommy, I'm going to get you on and we're going to pick your brain. And that's what we did for ice hockey. Well, here is uh, Tommy Lindberg. Well, Tommy, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. Um, for us here in South Africa, there is obviously not a lot of talk about uh, winter sports and probably a little talk about ice hockey in particular. So we thought we'd bring you on to kind of explain to us, you know, I think we all watched it on television and have seen highlights of hockey, ice hockey matches around the world, no matter where you've been, particularly of uh, ice hockey fights, <laughs> which seem to be a speciality. Um, can you just sort of talk to us very briefly about the, the sort of physiological challenges that that uh, ice hockey players are faced with yeah sure so uh, it's it's quite a special sport i think and an interesting sport from a physiological perspective it, it's i guess i mean there are certainly a lot of scientific studies on ice hockey as well and it's growing uh, in recent years but i th i guess if you compare it with other sports you know like football soccer etc there's it's relatively uh, little research still you could say but the game itself is relatively well described in the literature uh, it's quite anaerobic which is uh, 
quite special. Obviously, I mean the the basis of it that you're on skates on a on a rink that's you know uh, special in itself. Uh, but it's very intensity, intermittent. Uh, they change activity type every two seconds in a shift. So it's and and the fact that it's very anaerobic and high intensity means that. A typical shift for a player is only between 30 and 60 seconds. So they are on the field, on the ice for 30 to 60 seconds. And then they uh, sit on the bench for a while and rest for between two and four minutes. And then they come in again. So it's, it's very anaerobic on the ice for 30 to 60 seconds. And then they rest and recover and obviously need a relatively high capacity as well to recover between these high intensity bouts mm. tommy can i just ask you you mentioned us a, a few seconds back that they change activity type every two seconds what are the activity types you're talking about there you know change of direction uh, uh turning uh, okay. uh tackling uh right. so it's just the tie yeah it's of course it depends on the, the, the definition but you know change of direction backwards forward uh, etc so so it's very few activities that are i mean it's very very rare for example that you they would you know s skate or sprint in one direction for for yeah for longer than just a few seconds maximum mm -hmm. so uh, it's very you know it's changing all the time uh, etc so um, still if you count uh, like on field performance during a game they cover like i think it's around four and a half thousand meters so 4.5 k during a game and almost half of those uh, meters are covered in high intensity uh, and uh, sprinting is has been defined above 24 kilometers per hour and they have they do sprint skating about 500 meters per game so so it's uh, it's quite high intensity uh, they certainly use the anaerobic energy sources like uh, phosphocreatine and glycogen. Mm. Some studies suggest 60 to 70% glycogen depletion during a game. Mm. But still, they have a relatively high VO2 max, like around 59, 60 milliliters per kg on average. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not, of course, like endurance sports, but, but still relatively high, considering also that they are the weight of the players has increased in the last two decades from like 85 kilograms now up to closer to 90 kilograms on average. So, mm. so they are relatively big players. Uh, you know, uh, obviously physique is important. They, they do a lot of strength training. They lift quite heavy in the gym. They are strong, especially the defensemen. They are a little bit bigger than the forwards. The forwards can be a bit more mix of smaller players and bigger players uh, defensemen typically a little bit bigger and they play longer as well so it's slightly more demanding to play as a forward typically you have two two defensemen and, and three forwards on the pitch so the training must be quite interesting because if you have dual demands of high intensity efforts lasting 30 seconds but continuously for an hour long in a match do they yeah. do they polarize the training or do they try and do mixed training that simulates matches more often or is that vary across the calendar year depending on the block that they're in? 
Yeah, so my my sort of experience is that ice hockey is quite like it has followed a tradition and culture in terms of training for long. I think that's one of the things that we want to change a little bit now in Sweden. And, and part of my work with the Swedish Ice Hockey Federation as a consultant on physiology is maybe make the training a bit more game specific. It's been very traditional in terms of, you know, traditional strength and conditioning. They have an off season uh, during the summer where they typically are not on the ice hockey rink. They train, you know, just in the gym and, and running and, and cycling, etc. So quite like traditional off pitch, off ice uh, preseason training. Uh, and then uh, during season, there are a couple of things that I think are interesting. First of all, it's the match demand is quite high. They, it's very common to play three games per week. So two to three games per week. So it's not, they can't train, you know, too much. Obviously they need to recover and prepare for the games as well. But it's quite typical to have off ice uh, fitness training throughout the year. And then during the ice training, typically the focus is not that much on uh, the physiology it's more the sort of head coach the ice hockey coach you know they train they prepare for the game tac tactically they do power play training etc so i think that's one of the things i think could be a bit more like modern approach now to actually look at the physiology of ice hockey and also implement physical training that corresponds better to the actual game demand because you know obviously it's they are on ice with skates. I mean, uh, I don't think we can have a perfect transfer effect from, you know, running, cycling, these kind of off, off ice training uh, methods. So I think that's one of the interesting aspects that I think they can still improve their uh, physical training for sure in ice hockey, I think. Do they practice fighting? <laughs> Uh, so in Sweden, fight, in, in Sweden, fights are not actually allowed. It's, it's, uh, I think it's mainly allowed in the NHL. So in the, in the professional hockey league in, in North America. Uh, but, uh, so I don't think they practice it. Obviously in, in the North America, they have a few, a few play, at least before, back in the days, they, you know, a few players were in the squad mainly to, to go in when there were fights. Uh, <laughs> I think that has changed a little bit now as well. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, obviously it's a bit of a, I don't know. It's, I guess, part of the show in, in, in America to, with these fights, it, it's, as I said, it's not allowed, for example, in, I think at least not in Sweden, but I don't think in the Europe, European, uh, leagues either. And obviously, you know, there are issues like medical issues, like we have a lot of concussions, uh, in ice hockey, for example. So there are some, you know, serious you know, medical concerns as well with the, I mean, the concussions obviously are not mainly from the fights, but, but still in the, in the game. So I, I think uh, my guess it's, is that the fights are going to disappear more and more. I agree with you actually. And, and um, yeah. my limited exposure to ice hockey has been through concussion. Cause as you know, I work with, with rugby and we have a group that includes yep. the NHL and the international hockey federation, and they are addressing many of the same issues as we are. And, the fight used to be part of the entertainment in the US, um, but I think it's 
unpalatable to have something that's not part of the game that might cause a brain injury yeah. and allow it. So yeah. I agree with you. I think it's going to be going to be phased out. But it's interesting with concussions because actually we have similar rates of concussions in women's ice hockey, even they even though they have different rules. So they, you can't uh, uh, tackle uh, in the same way you can in men's ice hockey. So in women's ice hockey, uh, this sort of tackles against the rink, etc., are not allowed. But still, they have similar rates of concussions. So it's it's not only in the sort of physical, you know, collisions, etc. It's also in uh, yeah just you know collisions during the game etc so it's not only during tackles that they uh, get these concussions but they have been successful in sweden to decrease in the last years now they have this project called zero vision for concussions so they have actually been able to decrease the number of concussions and they're doing some research and work on the, uh, the helmets etc as well and obviously rule change i think uh, stuff that you, yeah, I guess it, some similarities with the rugby. Yeah, work. yeah. Uh, I mean, we're also yeah. str struggling at the moment. We have limited data in women's rugby. It's, it's growing very quickly, but the rugby picture is similar. That the forces and the speeds of contact in women's rugby are much lower, but the concussion rates about the same, which suggests that they probably have a slightly higher risk to to the, yeah. to the same load. So yeah, it's, it sounds quite similar. Tommy, if we look, if we think about the Winter Olympics that have happened, and I was actually just before we came on, I was watching the ice hockey began this morning for us. Uh, yeah. the, the current champions were a team from Russia for the men and the US, I believe, on the women's side. What makes the difference between elite teams in the Winter Olympics? Is it is there a physiological component to it, or is it more like football where everyone just focuses on tactics and skill? I mean, uh, to some extent, I think it's a combination. There is certainly a, like evidence that, you know, better teams are, uh, they have better uh, fitness. Uh, I'm not sure that would be evident if you take like the top, you know, eight mm. teams in the Olympics that you can actually, you know, discriminate them on uh, fitness. That's probably more the, you know, game skills, tactics, uh, you know, just player like how good are the players uh so it's kind of like you know when you're at the highest level in the olympics and or in the top league for example i think everyone has relatively high fitness so it's probably not going to be the physiological factors that hmm. makes you know the medalist but certainly if you compare like premier division versus you know first or second division etc then you can certainly see that they have higher fitness mm. in uh, you know in the higher leagues uh, for sure uh, but you know it's a lot of you know ice hockey is a bit special that there's been like six big nations really mm. for for decades that have dominated you know it's canada usa you have sweden finland you have czech republic and russia those are the big six countries that basically share all the gold medals between them in the olympics in the world cup Obviously, one thing that is also a bit, I guess, special with ice hockey is that we have this professional uh, hockey league in in North America. And what will determine the success in an Olympic game, for example, and in World Cup sometimes is how are the NHL players actually taking part in the tournament or not? Yeah. So some some Olympics, they have had a break in NHL and all players are available. And in some Olympics, 
none of the NHL players are available. So then it's really, you know, it's not the A team. Uh, it's yeah. the B or C team because, you know, all the best players, they play in, in NHL in North America. And it's the same in, in the World Cup, which is typically in beginning of May. You know, they can only take the players from NHL that are not in the playoffs. Mm. So if, if, if their team, uh, you know, uh, are beaten early in the NHL, they can go and play in the World Cup. But the best players or the best players from the best teams who go like to the quarterfinals, semifinals in the playoffs, they can't play in the World Cup. So it's a bit, you know, <laughs> different in that way because in many other sports, it would be, you know, uh, unthinkable almost that you would not have the best athletes in an Olympic game or in a, in a World Cup, for, yeah. for example. In, in Like in football, soccer, that would be unimaginable. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose the, the gravity of the NHL just sucks everyone towards it. It's so large and, and enormous. When you spoke earlier yeah. about fitness and, and you can assess that the best teams are fitter, what does fitness testing look like for an ice hockey player? I would imagine you would have to have, if you've, if you've described previously that you need strength and power and, and a degree of anaerobic yeah. endurance, you need a combination of things that happen on the ice and off? Yeah, so it's again, I, it's been quite traditional in terms of I, certainly the off-ice tests have dominated like the wingate 30 second sprint test is mm. common for example where they do like at least 12 watts per kg so certainly they are quite good at uh, you know wingate or all out sprinting on a bike mm. uh, they do standard tests in the gym like squat and stuff uh, but also uh, the cooper run test is common uh it, it's you know more and more ice tests are developed certainly like uh, repeated sprint tests on ice it's there is this version of the yo-yo intermittent recovery test on ice as well uh, so it's coming more and more i think we we have seen some data comparing on ice repeated sprint tests with off ice repeated sprint tests for example and it, the correlation is you know it's not that good huh. uh and what we also have seen is that in the Cooper run test, the 3K run test, for example, they they perform better after the summer, after the preseason, when they have actually, you know, probably done some running. And then during season, we don't think that the sort of on-ice aerobic capacity is decreased, but they they decrease in the Cooper run test. So I think that shows this, you know, specificity principle that the, uh, I think they should put more emphasis on, you know, on ice game specific fitness training in, in the future. Mm. When, when a coach is, is a standing on the side of the ice and assessing when to make his changes, you spoke earlier, it's 30 to 60 seconds on two to four minutes off. Does he, he, he yeah. has a plan. He knows that's going to happen. And all he's waiting for is an opportunity to do that safely so that he doesn't leave his team exposed, his, his goal exposed. <laughs> Does the coach ever try and assess fatigue during a game, looking at the player and saying, actually, this player needs to go on for 20 seconds and spend five minutes off? Or do they just run it as a formula? So I think, you know, first of all, the be the best players, they certainly play a little bit more, a little bit longer than the other players. So I think it's a lot up to this sort of subjective feeling and rating of the players themselves. They mm. probably, you know, tell the coach or... 
that okay I, I i need a rest or i can't play you know every second shift now i have to play every third shift or something so typically they have three lineups that they go with. so so that's why but if if you sometimes like in the end of the game the coach can decide that okay now we're just changing between these two lineups so then obviously the the recovery time between shifts mm. is going to decrease but you can't do that for a whole match probably so but my experience is that they they are not very in the forefront in terms of technology like using on i like real time uh, assessment for example during matches in, uh, certainly like things like heart rate etc they can do it. but they, i don't think it's as advanced as we see in professional football or soccer for example uh, it's it's more about coach feeling and uh, yeah player uh, you know, sensation, how they feel, etc., mm. and like this communication between the coach and the players during the game. It's it's not. I I don't think it's based on like data, for example. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, yeah, interesting. And so let's let's talk Winter Olympics. I mean, you've obviously been working with Sweden. Are they, are they prospects of medals or no? I mean, I, I'd say they almost always are. I, I don't think it's a, they are the favorite this year. They don't have, a, uh, again, it's a tournament where they don't have the A team, I'd mm. say. Uh, so many quite unknown players. Uh, but obviously, it's the same situation for other teams uh, as well. So, and Sweden have won before when there's been, you know, this situation where there's almost no nhl players uh, i remember i fondly remember 1994 for example when sweden won the olympics they also won 2006 so i mean they are almost always in the medal combat but i think you know it's always these six nations so uh, and it quite often it's hard to tell actually before the tournament who's who's the stronger you can maybe get some insights when the tournament starts uh, etc but it's typically quite hard to predict but it's almost always between these six nations. And, you know, a few years, Sweden are a bit stronger, Canada, etc. So it's uh, R- Russia, obviously, like during the 80s, they dominated almost. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to 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 see the ice hockey, but also the uh, the other sports. In we're Obviously, the Winter Olympics is big here in Sweden. We're pretty, doing pretty good now in cross-country skiing and, and some other sports as well. So, yeah, it's going to be exciting. How do you watch ice hockey? Do you watch it with an analytical eye or do you watch it as a, f- a fan and, and park your physiology while you watch it? Uh, certainly like more with the analytical eye now than before. Uh, I, I, I played myself, I, I can say, uh, until I was like 14 or, or so. I, then I, I chose football. But so, um, I mean, mainly before I just watched it like a you know, general sports supporter. But certainly now, since I've been more involved with the Ice Hockey Federation in Sweden, I, I also watch more with the analytical eye. And, and uh, so, it's, yeah, it's very interesting uh, uh, 
from a physiological perspective uh, and many aspects. They also lose a lot of fluid, for example. They lose like between two and four kilograms of body weight uh-huh. during a match. Uh, so that's also one thing that I think they can improve a little bit more because we know the high intensity activities go down a little bit in the third period of the game. Uh, so I think, you know, not losing too much fluid body weight can also be important in ice hockey and something they can probably improve more. Uh, so there, yeah, there's a lot of interesting aspects to look at now, uh, I think, when, when we watch a game. So, so give our listeners like two tips. You're watching it with an analytical eye. What, what, are, you, what are you looking at, for example, that our, our viewers, particularly those who aren't intimately familiar with the sport, can say, okay, I've got insights in this now, thanks to Tommy and Science of Sport. <laughs> Uh, yeah, obviously it depends a little bit on on the experience. I think how much you've seen ice hockey before. Uh, I know the game a little bit uh, more, I guess, since I've played etc. myself. So you can watch, you know, how they how they form their team, uh, you know, tactically in in uh, power plays uh, etc. I think in in terms of the physiolo- physiology, as a, if you're slightly more uh, sort of novice uh, viewer of the game. It's just interesting to see the very different characters uh, of the players. You know, some are small and, and very fast, you know, uh, agility, technical. And some are just big, you know, with the, uh, they are very good to follow players, follow game, block them, uh, tackles, etc. So just you see a very big, like, variety of physiolo- physiology and physique on the pitch. And you can sort of see how that influence the game and you know which so they all have different obviously uh, assets to the team depending on on their physique and their skills which i think is quite interesting to see this mix yeah tommy thanks very much for your time and looking forward to uh, watching it with uh, much more insight than i've ever had on ice hockey and uh, certainly we'll be rooting for sweden because we've spoken to you so thanks very much uh that sounds good you should <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Tommy. Well, fascinating there talking to Tommy Lindbergh. And uh, yeah, that sport of, uh, I mean, for us in the Southern Hemisphere, we don't see much around the ice hockey, but in North America, it is absolutely huge, isn't it? Yeah, Scandinavia and North America. Tommy spoke yeah. of the six countries. And I remember seeing in 2010, there was an unbelievably funny data or graphic that was released. I think it was by the Edmonton government. Because in 2010, Canada were hosting the Winter Olympics, Vancouver, and they made it to the ice hockey final. And if memory serves me, it had been a long time since they'd won one. And so the country, and and ice hockey in Canada is religion. And so the whole country was watching this game. And the Edmonton Water Board produced a stat or a graph showing water consumption on the night of the final. And it it starts off at like 400 megaliters or whatever per whatever. And then all of a sudden it just drops to next to nothing. Because that's when the face-off was. That's when the game starts. And then at the end of the first period, it climbs again back up to baseline because the whole country has gone to the bathroom at about the same time. <laughs> and then after the second period, the same. And then at the, at the, at when, when they, and, they, and they did win this final, then there's a little d- dip, the medal ceremony. There's no water consumption again. And then after the medal ceremony, back to normal. And so <laughs> the, the toilet flushing was synchronized in Canada for the period of that ice hockey final. Sure. I bet there's a few sports like uh, the the what's the American um, NFL the Super Bowl Super will be the Bowl, same. But it must be the mm. same, yeah. World but Cup I, final if Brazil's playing, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's ice hockey yeah. in the north. Yeah, that's, so. 
that's a good example of passion. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and we're going to talk to our to turn our attention to the very and uh, very complicated story around uh, cross country skiing and uh, biathlon, and talking to Kerry McGrawley, who is somebody that's been very immersed in this space for a number of years, and as very much an academic, but somebody that uh, really understands the sport and, and the physiology in particular. Yeah, so I got K- uh, Dr. Kerry McGawley's number from Tommy. I said to him, you know, what other sports? Does he know anyone particularly in cross-country skiing? Because as cyclists, runners, you and I, the sport that we have most familiarity with or most in common with would be cross-country skiing, as you're about to discover, because we'll talk about comparisons with, with Kerry. Uh, and, and they have an amazing model in Sweden where they've got these these towns that are set up to serve these Olympic athletes, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and she found herself going there, someone who didn't speak Swedish and didn't know cross-country skiing. And over the course of the last decade, become one of the world leaders in it. Yeah. And so she's been working as the, she was initially the director, and now she's a researcher at this Olympic center, uh, studying specifically biathlon, which involves a great deal of cross-country skiing. So no one better to pick the brains of around what again and i said this before cross-country skiing is fascinating because it is so similar to the sports that we talk about most often on this podcast and one of the sports that you can watch and appreciate most even if you don't know it at the winter olympics now in beijing well you'll see both of the buyers of our guests today on our show notes uh, on the podcast if you want to know more about them uh, check out the show notes and we'll give you more detail but here is a Henry Gawley talking about uh, cross-country skiing and uh, biathlon Right, Kerry, welcome to the Science of Sport. Um, obviously, great to chat to you, particularly for us here in South Africa, and uh, to talk about winter sports because a lot of it's very foreign to us here. And we're going to talk to you specifically around the sports of cross-country skiing and, and biathlon. But let's maybe kick off with the, the, the cross-country skiing things. For those that have no idea about cross-country skiing, what does the Olympic program look like for athletes that are competing in terms of distances and the disciplines? Um, yeah, hi, thanks for having me. Um, it looks very busy. When I started actually writing this down and like planning my next couple of weeks, I was like, wow, I got a lot to do. I don't know how I'm going to get my work in. Um, they start on Saturday, um, so tomorrow, as we're recording now. Um, and the women and the men uh, race uh, separately. Um, so on Saturday and Sunday, this first weekend is the skiathlon. And in cross-country skiing and biathlon as well, the men and the women race over slightly different distances. So the skiathlon is um, a combination of the two main cross-country skiing techniques. So you have classic skiing and you have skate skiing in cross-country. In biathlon, they only ski freestyle, which is the skate technique. Um, But in cross-country skiing, they use a mixture of the two. So the skiathlon skiathlon is a combination of the two. uh, And the women ski seven and a half K of, of classic first and then followed by skate and the men ski 15 kilometers plus 15 kilometers. So they ski double the distance. So just can you explain what those two disciplines are then? Those two different styles. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so the classic. You've really dumb it down with us, you see. <laughs> no, that's cool. Yeah. Um, the classic cross country skiing, you might have seen it, it's in the parallel tracks. Um, mm-hmm. So it looks more like a running technique. The skis glide forwards and backwards in a linear motion. Whereas the skate is more like that kind of ice skating motion where the skis go out to the side. So the classic skiing has the grip grip kind of wax because as they push down through the foot, they need to grip onto something as they push through. Whereas the skating use a lot more the, the edges to push off the sides. So yeah, right. Mm. I would imagine you'd want a longer ski on the classic, right? Yeah, slightly. 
Yeah, so that so that so in the skiathlon, people will see them come into a, a pit stop in effect and change. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so they'll ski the, the classic first because then they're inside the tracks, and then yeah, and you can actually lose a little bit of time and really mess up your race on that transition. Um, so yeah, they'll have their skis set up. They'll slide in, unclick. It looks a little bit like triathlon in a way, I guess. Like unclick mm. very quickly, get into their other skis. So they have a combination boot as well because. Um, in classic and skate, you would usually have a slightly different boot. There's a lot more ankle support on the skate mm-hmm. ski um, because you're going over to the side. So in this one, they don't change their boots, but they use a combi boot. So that's the first and- event of very many, by the way. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I know we're gonna we're gonna get. It's it's, it's so interesting. We might we might take a t- take some time. Uh, does the same skier tend to dominate both, or are they different enough that? someone who comes outside the top 10 in one will be a medalist in another um in the different um S- in styles, the different techniques yeah, yeah so mm. this skiathlon um like our swedish athlete Olof Kalla, she's the reigning uh, female champion in any case uh, she's a really strong skater and a less good if you're a strong skater it's good because with the classic you can kind because they they start off Uh, together in the classic you can stay in the pack a little bit like cycling you know what i mean there's Mm. a lot of drafting in cross-country skiing there's a real effect of drafting so if you can stay with the pack on the on the classic and you're a stronger skater you've kind of got an advantage because you can then um take off a little bit more on the skate and that's also it's a really good event for our british skier um andrew musgrave because he's a really strong skater so if he can stay with the strong norwegians and the russians for example on that classic section then he's got a good chance to do well on the skate. But I mean, all cross-country skiers, because all of the events, as we'll get on to later, all of the events, um, they sort of rotate for the Olympics and the world champs. One year, a certain distance will be classic and the next time of the running, it will be skate. So all cross-country skiers need to be equally good in both classic and skate. So you won't get specialists in those two. But what you will get is certain people who are naturally better at classic versus mm. skate. Right. All right. So tell us about what happens after that. Once you've got that one down, what other disciplines yeah. do you have to deal with? There's a lot more. <laughs> yeah, there are. Yeah. So that's just this weekend. Uh, then on Tuesday of next week, it's the sprint um, cross country. So I'm just talking about cross country for now. Like all of the biathlon are going in parallel with this. So they're fitting in around the same sort of days. But um, on Tuesday is the cross-country sprint race. So that's really exciting. The men and the women race on the same day at the same sort of time in the schedule, but they alternate. So the women go first. So they'll have their prologue qualification race, um, which is an individual start race. And then the time from that prologue, um, if they get a good enough time in the top 30, they go on to the knockout stages. And then there's a quarterfinal, a semifinal and a final and the men and the women get alternated. So that it'll be the women's prologue, men's prologue, then a bit of a break, they get a rest. Women's quarter, men's quarter, women's semi, men's semi, um, women's final, men's final. And each race, if I remember correctly, because I watched this in 2018, and I have to say it was it was probably one of the most exciting mornings of sports I've ever had. I've, I've never been so immersed in an event for so long because what happens is you'll see the prologue, so you'll learn the course. Because the course will be how long? It, it was, I mean, they're taking five or six minutes, I think, if I remember right. No, they take about three. It's kind of two to four minutes. Oh, even quicker. Yeah, and the course is about a kilometre and a half. So it's about one to 1. 1.8 kilometres. It, dep- it doesn't mm. have to be fixed, but it has to be in yeah. those margins. 
So what happens is you learn the course. And so you recognize, okay, they're about to hit the steep little incline. And you know there's going to be an attack there because you've seen it in all the prologue, uh, in the, all the qualifications. So by the time you get to the semi and the final, it's like you know the characters mm. and you know more or less the stage and you anticipate and you, it's, it's, it's a story that develops over the course of a morning for us here in South Africa anyway. And I, I just found it fascinating. Plus, the physiology must be unbelievable because you're asking endurance athletes to sprint and repeat that over and over. Yeah, it's awesome. I love it. And and in in Pyeongchang, we also won gold in the women's events. Dina Nilsson won that, who is now, by the way, very interestingly, with the biathlon team in Beijing. Uh, so she tr transitioned uh, between these two um, Olympic cycles. Um, but yeah, I love the sprint. And, and we've actually got like, our women are amazing at it. We've done lots of research on the sprint, like so looked a lot into the tactics, the pacing strategies, the physiology. So uh, like, I love it too. I think it's fascinating, just like you do. Um, and there's, there's kind of different, I guess, demands of each of the rounds as well. And they have to be quite savvy because um, the whole event itself takes about three to four hours. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, it's only like two to four minute bouts four times if you're going to win the event. But that's like sort of a 1500 meter runner being expected to back up four 1500s, um, sort of 800, 800, 1500 um, within the space of three or four hours. Um, so you've got to be really careful with your sort of energetics and your recovery the prologue, they can be a little bit smart and start to pay. If they're really good, if they, if they know that they're in the sort of top five, top 10, they can pace their prologue a little bit so that they don't, you know, use up all their energy or they don't fatigue too much in the prologue. Uh, it's a bit more of a chilled recovery and then they've got more to give. But in the World Cup races, they've changed the points. So you get extra bonus points if you do well in the prologue to try to stop athletes from doing that. And they've also got a really cool tactical system where the better you do in the prologue, um, you because you get to choose which quarterfinal you go into, the better you do in the prologue, um, the better options you get of which quarterfinal you pick. And obviously you want to pick, we've done a, a study on this actually, it's just come out in the last month. Um, you want to pick one of the first two quarters because there's five quarterfinals. You want to pick one of the first two because that puts you into the first semi and that just extends your rest from the quarter to the semi and then from the semi to the final because those rest periods are down to like by between the semi and the final then you're down to 15 20 minutes and that difference between doing the first or the semi semis semi um we found in our study to be crucial for performance like by five percent yeah what do they do when they finish and they've qualified for the semi-final from the quarters or for the final from the semi do they do they try anything to accelerate the recovery or is it actually just a better to sit down, get your mind ready and, and then stay warm? If you're at the stadium, you'll see like the bigger teams, uh, you'll see like Monarch uh, cyclogometers, you know, mm. like lined up out there. So they'll sit on a bike um, if that's available to them and just spin over easily. So they will do some active recovery uh, and then they'll have some passive recovery and then they'll also have some sort of nutrition yeah there'll, there'll be some sort of nutrition between each one usually as well and that'll get down to just sort of like carbo gels or stuff in between those later ones but it's quite crucial from the prologue to the quarter is like a couple of hours so there it's quite important like their nutrition to keep it topped up all the way through mm. and you say that's tuesday 
but yeah, that's Tuesday, yeah. So that's my Tuesday morning sorted. And the guys that do that spin stuff, I mean, they, they, they're obviously specialists in that particular discipline. They don't go to any of the other cross-country disciplines. They do, yeah. <laughs> um, so if you imagine it, so it's actually extremely aerobic, um, mm. the sprint, because it's, first of all, it's two to four minutes, so that's already predominantly aerobic. The recovery is hugely aerobic. But yeah, the anaerobic components are crucial. So that um, sprint finish is crucial. And like you said, Ross, like there's little kind of kicks or bits of hills and they're always crucial as well. So it's always those explosive anaerobic uh, sections that are crucial for the winner, even though it's a really aerobic sport. So Stina Nielsen, who won at the last Olympics and uh, Claire Bow from Norway won the men's race. Um, Stina actually also got um, what did she get? She got bronze in the 30 kilometer mass start race. So the other wow. end, which we'll come on to later, mm. which were, um, and that was very similar with the Norwegian Petter Nordtug, who's like kind of one of the biggest, um, I guess, profiles in cross country skiing. He was um, an awesome sprinter. Lots of them are good all the way through, but they're also good in the mass start because that's more, again, like a, imagine like a cycling race. It's about two hours, but it's mass start. So they can, there's a lot of drafting and pack racing. And then oftentimes it comes down to a sprint finish after two hours. Mm. So again, that's got a similar kind of idea to a, to a cycling race. If you know what I mean, that if you can just yeah. stay in the pack, it comes down to the best sprinters at the end. Right. I was going to say it's analogous to watching a, a tour de France and seeing someone finish 180 K winning a sprint. And then a week or two later, watching that athlete in the Olympic games, winning a, a track medal, for instance. Yeah, and I guess the uh, the other thing with cross-country skiing that makes it more tricky for preparation, that makes it more interesting for us as physiologists is the topography. So it's always, it has to have a third uphill, a third flat and a third downhill pretty much in the courses. That's how the courses have to be structured according to the rules. Um, so you've always got hills and lots of technical issues to cater for as well. And that's what, so right. that's why these athletes, these athletes, sorry, these athletes are so interesting because yeah, like you said, you would imagine, I couldn't believe it when I first came to Sweden, I was like, what are these guys doing? Why don't they, um, why don't they specialize? And it's a traditional thing that they don't, but also there's so much crossover between the events, even though they're two minutes to two hours. Wow. So, I, so I appreciate that there's obviously a lot of crossover and, and physiology to a large degree constrains who can succeed where, but do you think, having been involved almost as, and, and I mean, don't let me put words in your mouth, but as an outsider, do you think over the next decade that will change enough that there will be specialists? Because even if even if specializing gives you 2 or 3%, that's clearly going to make a significant difference. Yeah, I don't know if it will happen more and more. It is happening already. Like So we've okay. clearly got, within our Swedish squad, we've clearly got, especially on the female side, women who are just standout world champion sprint skiers and then standout world champion distance skiers as you would call them um which is the sort of 10 15k and the skiathlon that we already talked about not necessarily the mass start because the mass start is similar to the sprint like i said um so that does happen already but the thing is then you get athletes like johannes clairbo who who's a norwegian skier who's just winning everything and i think because technique is such a big part of this um equipment is such a big part of it as well that if you've got a good team around you and you've got a great technique in the two classic and traditional you can be really good 
um, across the board. But yeah, they do specialise to some degree already. Whether that's going to get more, more and more, um, I guess, distinct, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But it, it was definitely something that me coming into the sport as an outsider from the UK that had never really been involved in it, like growing up, I was pretty blown away to begin with that they didn't specialise more. Hmm. Sure. Okay, let's move the, through the distances then. So you've got the sort of spin stuff. What, what's what's next on the schedule? Yeah, so then it's the classic kind of race, uh, which is the classic sort of, di- and I say classic in, a, in another way now, like traditional, <laughs> uh, the distance race. And that's 10 kilometers for women and it's 15 kilometers for men. And that's the traditional race where the good, like outstanding, like distance skiers will win. So typically that will be a, a different person who's won uh, the, the sprint and is likely to win the mass start race typically. Um, but it could be somebody who's won the skiathlon because the distances are quite di- are similar. So the women will mm. ski 10 mm. where they skied 15 in skiathlon, the men will ski 15 where they skied 30. And it's one of those techniques only. So this year uh, in Beijing, it's classic skiing. So it was skates in Pyeongchang last time. And right. that's, that's sorry. Am I, am I correct in, in did I understand you correctly that that's not a mass start? No, that's individual start. Yeah. So it's so, effectively a time trial, and they go exactly. off at one one minute increments, or does it does it change over the course as you get to the favourites? No, it stays the same, but they 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 do it according to rankings. So they have like different blocks of skiers going at different times, so that you would never have like the top two skiers or the top block of good skiers one behind the other there'll always be a lower ranked kind of like filtered in between them um and I th- i'm pretty sure it's 30 second intervals and does the weather make a significant difference can you get lucky with your start time because i would imagine the first person goes off an hour maybe two hours before the last and that could change a the terrain of the course and b the weather yeah it does um and it wouldn't be that spread out um and a world cup it could be more i don't know what the limit i don't know what the cap of the olympics is but there's typically fewer athletes anywhere in the olympic race but it might be like an hour for sure between the the first and the last if not slightly more Um, and yeah you're totally right if it's snowing a lot that affects it even more if it's Mm. if there's no kind of precipitation um and it's fairly stable conditions not a lot's going to happen but you can imagine as well the um the course gets a bit churned up so that will make it slower so oftentimes the later you are but yeah, you're totally right. If the temperature changes, if the snow precipitation changes, and then the effects of people that have gone ahead can affect the course. So it does. But and and they'll always try to. Um, yeah, I mean, it'll it, it, in the way of it getting churned up naturally. Then they'll try to make it beneficial for the likely winners yeah. in how they do the start times. So, I mean, here in South Africa, we obviously have a big culture around ultra-distance running, but we've had lots of Europeans participating in our ultra-distance races. I remember a chap by the name of Charlie Dole, who was the winner of the Comrades Marathon here. He was a massive uh, cross-country skier um, when he was training in the off-season, and a lot of the Europeans do that. Talk us through the the, the physiology of the of the the sort of I think the long dis- the distance skiers seems to be the one that we know the best in terms of us understanding what they do. But what is required for them to be good distance skiers? Yeah, it's quite similar to running and cycling and other kind of endurance sports. So there's quite a lot of literature on this, and we've done quite a lot of studies ourselves. 
So it's the typical VO2 max, uh, the fractional utilization, so that kind of lactate threshold type stuff, how high, how close to your VO2 max you can hold for you know, as long as possible. Um, it's economy, so we do measure efficiency and economy. We've got a huge treadmill in our lab that you can cross-country skate on with roller skis, so obviously a lot shorter than the full ski. Um, and lots of labs that focus on this type of work will have those. Um, and then also it's anaerobic capacity is a huge part because of the topography, like you've got lots of ups and downs and you've got sprint finishes. So in that capacity, it's a little bit more like, um, I guess something like uh, mountain biking or like, you know, you wouldn't necessarily compare it with track running from that perspective because that anaerobic component is so important because they're going above their VO2 kind of max, maximal aerobic capacity a lot of the time when they're skiing uphill. And we've, we've got measurements of that. They might be up at 160% of VO2 max for some sort of climb of a hill. And then they've got the possibility to replenish that kind of anaerobic energy stores on the, on the flatter sections and the downhills um, and then there might be tactical components as well where they need to get past somebody. So, yeah, it's those classic VO2 max, fractional utilisation, um, skiing efficiency, um, which is obviously affected by technique. It's the anaerobic power kind of capacity. Um, and then they do a lot of strength work. It's a, it's a whole body um, sport, as you can imagine. But people then obviously often think that's arms and legs. Their core is unbelievably strong. So there's a lot of core on on classic skiing, there's a lot of like double poling, which is kind of like this mm. bouncing backwards and forwards. Mm. Um, and then the very specific attributes depend. Yeah, I mean, you talked about distance there, but also it will depend on whether it's an individual or a mass start that we've already talked about and slightly which of the two techniques, classic or skate, it is. Um, so that's what kind of most of the literature has shown that's just done very simple, like correlational analyses between um laboratory kind of determinants, laboratory measures and, and performance. Um, we've actually just published a paper in MedSci using quite a lot more uh, advanced like statistical techniques and used lots of, because we've got a huge database from all of these world-class athletes, like as you can imagine, because we're kind of the test center. Um, and we've, 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 we've done the, the largest study of these kind of um, uh, predictive kind of attributes that there is and we actually really struggled to find um, clear determining factors of performance over time. So we've we've looked at both developmental athletes over a period of years and looked at what attributes need to develop um, in order for fizz points. So they're kind of, you know, standardized. Um, fizz is the International Ski Federation. So it's their ranking system for those points to improve um, what laboratory factors or anthropometrical factors need to improve. And we don't find any um, predictive models for the men at all, um, which is weird. Like, so we've got in there, we've got body composition, lean mass, fat mass, we've got their age. Um, and then we've got all the things that I already mentioned to you, VO2 max, uh, lactate threshold and so on. Um, for the women, uh, we found predictive models. And this was both for cross country and biathlon, by the way. Um, for the women in both sports, we found predictive models. And then it was like I said, it, VO2 peak was one of the most important characteristics. Uh, their speed at two and four millimoles of lactate concentration. Um, and then lean body mass, so body composition, uh, lean body mass, a lower fat mass, and a, and a lower body mass, into a higher body mass. But the lean body, it's, that's a really difficult one to kind of talk to the athletes and the coaches about um, with 
the female athletes. So that's that's been a bit of a sensitive one. And then on the biathlon side, um, shooting performance comes into that model as well. Mm. I don't want to kind of overcomplicate it, but it's quite interesting that we've done uh, like a, quite an in-depth study. Um, and there's the second paper is currently in review with MedSci as well. Um, but the first one like has been published, um, but it kind of goes against, I guess, those more simple models. So I think, um, yeah, I think it's complicated. And I think there's more to it than just saying these are the most important things. But obviously you need to have a basically high VO2 peak and a very high fractional utilization, a very good technique and a very good anaerobic power. There's no getting away from that. I'd have thought that um, it fairly unsurprising that there's no no predictive element there because you can put together the same performance in different ways so in running and cycling for instance there's an inverse relationship between economy and max which is logical because if you have if you're inefficient your max is likely to be higher and vice versa so i wonder whether you've looked for instance there was a study came out when that sub two hour marathon where they found that the best marathon runners are maintaining I think it was in the range of 87 to 90% of their VO2 max for two hours. That that would seem to be an important one. But you're saying not even that stands out. Um, for the women, the the speed at their two and four millimole values yeah. stands out, which would be something similar, I guess. Yeah, yeah, fair. But, but you're right. Um, but you, I still would think that, because I've always thought that about runners or any endurance athletes, that, yeah, you can have a higher this and a lower that and you can account for it, but surely those athletes that are killing it at the very top really have got a high, an extremely high to the point of nearly as high as the highest in mm. at least two, if not more of those kind of areas. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's interesting that. Mm. I mean, I they are. Because... They are. I mean, what what is the distance of the races? You know, when they say they're doing ten and fifteen kilometers, how long do they take to do that? About half an hour. Oh wow! Okay. For the okay. ten yeah. or the fifteen? Sorry, was that about about the same? So. Oh, because um, the men do the fifteen, yeah. and they okay. Yeah, and I mean, the men take a bit longer because they're not that much faster than the women. That fifteen k's is equivalent in time to ten k's. So the women will typically be a bit under thirty minutes, and the men might be around that or a bit over. Um, and that depends on the ski conditions quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Russ, I mean, just from a, a perspective that we come from, it's 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 as close to cycling as probably anything because you need that very high aerobic ability. Um, and it's right up there with top cyclists in terms of what they can do because you get, obviously, you get climbing cyclists and you get guys who can sprint. But physiologically, there, there's a high VO2 max that is a similarity between them all. Yeah, but I would imagine, and I'm no expert on this, but the muscle contractions are different because they're not the same repetitive cyclical concentric contractions. So, what what is what is the biomechanics of cross country skiing? That must make yeah. it in a, in some ways more similar to running. So it's actually the it it lies between the two. So certainly cardiovascularly, it's it's the equivalent of cycling, but mechanically, it's not. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right, Mike. Like I, I've always felt, cause I'm a triathlete, I race triathlon. So I kind of know running and cycling and swimming <laughs> really well. So when I kind of first got into cross country, I was kind of doing those comparisons as well. And I do feel that it's, it's very similar to cycling from that perspective, because there's no, there's no, um, eccentric kind of, there's no impact like there is in running, for example, yeah. um, mm. in that respect. Um, so from that muscular perspective, I feel also that 
um, because you don't have that kind of, yeah, stretch shortening in the same way as you do in running. Um, but the two sports, it's, it's quite interesting, like uh, the biathletes in the off season who do skate, by the way, uh, they pretty much, they max out on cycling. They do tons of cycling. That's more their kind of summer off season um, training. They do loads of roller skiing as well. And they'll go mm. to snow, snowy places too. But um, whereas the cross country skiers have traditionally done a lot more running and the ski, they'll, they'll liken classic skiing, which the, the skiers, the cross country skiers do to a running motion. It's much more like a, it's a linear kind of running motion. Mm. Um, but even though they do as much skate as they do classic, they do do a lot more running than they do cycling in the off season. Um, that's probably changed a little bit over time. And some of the, a lot of our skiers and athletes train together um, because they're at the same sort of level. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to think what we were talking about the, the biomechanics. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a biomechanist. I have done some biomechanical testing but um, and studies. Um, well, I was just thinking in terms of, if you, especially in the classic, you at some point you would have hip extension. Cycling is yeah. almost always in hip flexion. You'd also have much larger range around the ankles. And so... It, but you've just said yourself that the 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 movement more is more closely resembles running when you do classic style. Yeah, you're right, and the hip so. extension is massive. And I can tell you that the three probably the three best distance skiers at the moment on the women's side, um, Tadeusz Gjohaug in Norway, and two of our female skiers, Frida Carlson and Eva Andersson, have been like elite runners. Like they could have been runners. Mm, right. Certainly, Eva and Tadeusz. Tadeusz, I think. She didn't go. I think she'd qualified for Tokyo 10K or so. Hmm. Like, so they're kind of like that level of running. How it's, important is aerodynamics? And I'm not, you, you mentioned already drafting, but I'm thinking more around the, uh, where they do effectively a time trial and whether the suit has evolved in a way that might give some teams advantages over others. Or is it too slow for that? They don't focus on it very much. And sometimes I'm a little bit surprised about that. I mean, we work with Alpine skiers as well, and we've got a wind tunnel on our um, campus. So we do lots of work with the Alpine skiers on their aerodynamics and a lot on their tech, like you said, the suits. Um, they do wear, the, the suits have become tighter, um, like any sort of athletic event, I would say, over time. Like there's less, like back in the days, if you see those old school photos, there's like flappy, like ski jackets and flappy stuff. Uh, they don't have any of that anymore. So they're in very, very like tight suits. So their suits are very aerodynamic from that perspective, but they don't do a lot of like tech and testing on more specifically aerodynamic um, uh, equipment or kind of even positions, I would say. The position, I don't think there's, I haven't seen any literature at all or seen any testing. We don't do it in our labs of like looking at their aerodynamic positioning on, on descents. But I mean, if you watch tons of it um, and they've obviously kind of evolved to their coaching and their training and um, they've kind of evolved the fact that they get obviously when they when they do descend, they're, they're in a tuck position um, and you won't see any particular athletes necessarily getting away because of their tuck position per se, yeah. because it's quite easy to stay with. The most important factor there without a shadow of a doubt um, is the ski waxing and the, the skis and the ski was, waxing yeah, is so much there, more yeah, yeah. yeah. and that, that's so much a, more important 
Sorry. Yeah, the, sorry. There was a rumor, um, or at least there was coverage of it in South Korea, that the Norwegians had a waxing method that was giving them advantages over everyone else. And I don't know how well placed you are to comment on that, or at least explain why that could be an issue. Um, recently, there's there's the, the waxing and the ski prep and the ski choice is huge. It's like it's an entire science on its own. Yeah. So if you go to any race, big big events, World Cups, Olympics, um, the Norwegians, the the, the Swedes, that like you know the big teams, they've got massive like articulated lorries, like trucks, ginormous trucks, like rows of them, filled up with skis and wax and technicians. Um, and the technicians are like, they don't have sports scientists like, at all. They have ski technicians. That's what, that's the most important thing for them. Huh. And, and they'll be out there now, like they are out there now. They're testing hundreds of pairs of skis for those conditions, for those athletes on those days, according to what the ski, the, the temperature is going to be, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's huge. Um, and, and firstly, there's the skis themselves, the actual ski, and they'll, they'll test lots of them. And then they'll kind of structure the bottom of the ski in a certain way. And then they'll use wax on top of that structure. And there's different types of waxes um, for different types of conditions, but there's also different qualities of waxes. And I don't know if this is the reason or the thing that you were talking about specifically in this example, Ross, but um, there's this kind of floor wax, which is extremely, it's, it's basically like gold dust wax, um, <laughs> which is extremely expensive and only the very most like wealthy teams, which is basically Norway can afford this stuff or, you know, all the teams are using it, but, but it, it, it turns it into a huge kind of contest of who's got the most resources. So um, I'm not an expert on, on waxing and equipment at all at all like i have to get someone else to do mine basically <laughs> um but um but i think they banned this now because it's too much of a deciding factor so it's yeah. a little bit like you know the swimsuits in swimming right. it's just too much yeah. of a factor um and and also the i think the other reason that it, this might even be the main reason that they banned it is because i think it's got um environmental impacts like it's negative for uh sustainability of the environment for example i think mm. that might be an even bigger factor I'm sure it is. We've seen that sports governing bodies are reluctant to do anything, so I'm sure that might be the thing that helped them make the right decision. Are there are there different? I mean, are skis? I mean, that sounds like a really silly question, but obviously in cycling we talk about carbon fiber and aluminium and steel. I mean, are, are they are they are this? What are the skis made out of, and how can they differ? Yeah, I guess that all of the skis now are pretty much the same. Um, and yeah, I'm out on a, I'm out on a limb here because I don't know too. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that they're kind of carbon. I don't know. When I look at mine, mine have got like when the, when the top starts running, rubbing away, they're like wood. I think they're wood. Mm. Maybe. I'm not too sure. Some sort of I'm not too sure. Though. Yeah, and there's like uh, I guess, like the boots are carbon. I know that the mm. ski boots, and that's kind of been a, a development over time. And now the boots have got really seriously quite advanced. Um, but yeah, I. I I don't, I don't, I don't know if it would be carbon like underneath. Mm. But it's I, a particular, it's a particular art that. form, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but they have. They... I can imagine I was just it's say, sorry. along the lines. It's, it's, it's. it's I, I guess the skiing is a lo little bit like finding what, what works for you in terms of whether it, if the ground is rough, you obviously need a, a ski that is more flexible or less flexible. So the conditions dictate the kind of ski that you would use on any given day. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and like I said, like all the skis look that they're the same. It'll be the same company. So, you know, like different skiers have got different sponsorship deals. So I don't know if you've seen like the interviews at the end, but they're very quick to get their skis facing with their Salomon or whatever brand it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's kind of a few top brands and, and that's it. So it's a little bit like biking from that perspective. And all of the skis will look the same. But it's like you said, the way that they're made in the factories. And um, so the factories kind of will make them and then um, certain sets of skis will be set aside for professional athletes. Uh, all the rest will go into the shops for people like us to buy. Um, so like all of my skis, for example, are kind of ex um, elite skier skis that like a knocked off. So I'll just happen to have much better skis maybe than somebody that's bought a pair off the shelf at the shop. Um, but they look exactly the same. Um, and then also I think the way that they're made um they can try and tell, but they can't tell to the nth degree that these skiers and the, the, the testing teams can tell these differences. But it's exactly like you say, it's the amount of kind of flex. And that all, so it's quite related to the body weight of the athlete, for example. And like you said, the topography of the course. So they spend hours and hours. They'll like go ski to the top of like a hill and then they do lots of gliding tests as well. And they'll see how well they glide on just the ski and then on the structure and then on the different waxes. So, um, yeah, like this is a major full-time process for a huge team of people. Sure. Take us through a typical week of a a cross-country distance skier. What does the training look like? Um, Let's talk about a competitive uh, season rather than off-season. There's some nice studies that have come out from like some of the Norwegian groups down in Oslo and up in Trondheim. Um, We've done some stuff as well. And... um, I mean, in a year, these top skiers, um, so there's a paper by Tennyson, and he talks about like the road to gold. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, Ross, but there's kind of, um, it's it's all of the kind of training um, and peaking that they'll do throughout the course of a season leading up to the best performance that they've had of the very top like world-class skiers. Um, but they'll train sort of 800, eight, about 800 hours per year, like annually, um ski I, training I, or does that include the weight work is that everything yeah that that's kind of all of their training but about 90 okay. percent of it will be aerobic type of including high intensity interval training but about 90 percent of it will be kind of uh, aerobic endurance based training and of that 90 percent, about 90 percent of that will be intensity so they use a very polarized kind of training process so it'll be about 90 percent at low intensity sort of 80 to 90 and then you'll have that kind of five five ish in that kind of moderate intensity area and then sort of five to ten percent will be at high intensity or high intensity kind of interval work um and then yeah the other ten percent of their training will be other which will be sort of strength um uh, mobilization yeah functional strength work um and it will depend on the type of uh, the time of year. Most of it is sport specific, so most of it is skiing um, or roller skiing in the summer is one of their main kind of like mo- modes of training. And then, like I said, the, they'll run and they'll cycle as well. So that they'll be kind of their main modes of exercise. Um, about a year and a bit ago, I, I examined um, a PhD on the whole PhD was a case study basically of Moritz Bjergen, who's the most successful um, 
cross-country skier in the world, according to kind of medals, but she's actually also the most successful Olympian ever of any summer or winter sport. Um, so she's pretty decent. And she's really interesting because she also uh, gave birth like uh, either side of her career and she kind of, she had a long career. So it, it's quite interesting how her training evolved over time, pre uh, giving birth and having a child and post to that, but also as she aged, you know what I mean? And she didn't need to do so much of that, those base hours anymore. And it got a little bit more refined. And there's other kind of examples of that from our skiers that as they've got older, they need to do less of that like base volume and they can really reduce their training load. But in some of those papers, like the five, her five most successful years, I think she had like, I think it was reported 937 or something. So 950, let's say training out, like it was more training hours annually than had been reported previously. And then there was a big kind of thing of everyone started to say, oh my God, I've got to train more. I just got to load on like tons more training. Um, which is obviously a bit, so they, they train a lot, a lot of hours, probably more than any other sport, maybe not triathlon, who's got three, three different kind of uh, disciplines. Um, but yeah, I mean, so the training week will be a lot of long, slow um, sessions. It will be um, one or two like high intensity interval sessions. Um, and we haven't talked about biathlon at all. I mean, obviously it differs quite a bit for biathlon because they have yeah. to get in a lot of shooting as well. Um, yeah. And then they'll do kind of altitude training camps. I mean, it's similar to other endurance athletes, I guess. Mm. And what are the two or three injuries that a cross-country skier is most likely to be sidelined by? Uh, there's a lot of lundrug. Um, I just have the words in Swedish. Um, like, would it be like like this uh, lumbar lumbar? But it's a lot of back injury. Like they get a lot of slip disc yeah, type, that, type stuff. Constant flexion and extension. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And then I guess there's uh, like shoulders. They they don't get in. Yeah, the the back is the main issue. I would mm. say like thinking about the issues that we have in our squad um some shoulder stuff um and yeah some stress fractures actually is not kind of uncommon hmm. despite the, that's that's a compression type stress fracture in the back i would have thought because there's not really impact so it'll be yeah i wonder i wonder if they're getting that because some of the girls are getting it i wonder if they're getting that from like more their off season running hmm I haven't, we've done, one of my PhD students, he works with more of their kind of illness and what's affecting their illness, but I haven't done any work personally on injury. I just see what I see through our physios and our athletes. Just a just a complete aside, and I, I know I'm moving off the topic slightly. You talked about that athlete just a few moments ago. Was she better as an athlete before the baby or after the baby? Well, she was pretty much world champion and everything before. Um, so she couldn't really get much better, but she, she did sustain it. And now she's gone over to like, cause one thing we haven't talked about and we won't talk about is there's also long distance ski marathon racing, mm. which is a whole nother thing. It doesn't come into the Olympics. Um, so it's, it's a little bit Ross, like for example, well, both of you, it's a little bit like, you know, you've got the, the ITU with triathlon, and then you uh, but Iron then Man's. you've also got the Ironman. So, yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit like the Ironman split off thing. So they're not supported by their nations in the same way as triathlon, triathlon is. Um, and, and so lots of athletes might go over to that once they sort of retire from traditional distance skiing. So she's done that. So she was as successful afterwards, but in a different way. And that was what was quite interesting was that she, she achieved it 
using different methods, which is quite interesting just from a sort of training principles perspective, really. So if I remember correctly, she won her last Olympic medal in 2018, right? Or was it before that? I, I may have lost track. And then obviously yeah. retired, but that was as a 37-year-old, I think it was. So she'd be in her 40s now. Yes, she was a she was a really good sprinter. So she was interesting. She was one of those ones that was a really good sprinter, but but then also one that so she, what she won in Pyeongchang that you just said there, Ross. She won the women's thirty-kilometer mass start race. Hmm. Um, and I'm just trying to think where she. I'm pretty sure she medaled, maybe got silver in the skiathlon. Um, so she got quite a few medals, even in Pyeongchang at the last one. But yeah, I can't remember how old she was, but yeah, like late 30s. So you can keep going into your late 30s at least. But then I remember also you mentioned his name earlier. Clybo was the guy that won the sprint. He was in his early 20s in 2018, I think. He was new on the scene then. So the, mm. the, age, the age range is the point I'm getting. It seems like you can, you can start in your early 20s and you can have a 20-year career. Yeah, and we've got um, like a, a world champion. One of our girls is Frida Carlson. She was, I think she wasn't even 20 when she won, maybe as a senior. Um, so she'll be, this is her first Olympics and she's really young. And even Eba Andersson, she was 20 at the last Olympics and got fourth, I think, in the skiathlon. So you're right, like it's a, it's a really big range. Interesting, because cycling, so of course, they used to say you've got to earn your way into elite peak in your late 20s and then you've got a five or six year career but mm. this seems to be wider yeah that's also changed because of Pogaccia there's also a fairly young athlete so I suppose there's yeah, always outliers in yeah, every sport and you've got yeah. Valverde and so on I think many sports yeah. are actually changing the age of typical mm. success which is another interesting conversation yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about biathlon I know we haven't touched on it too much but you know there are obviously similarities in terms of the skiing component but Talk us through how that works. I mean, we know that they stop and they have to shoot at targets. I read up a little bit about it and Ross sent me some stuff yesterday. I mean, you have to be incredibly accurate just to make it through the qualifying rounds. How, how does it work? Um, just the sport in, very, in general. Yes, and, and mm. what, what, are the, what, what does yeah. the Olympic program look they, like? Because they also... Yeah, because yeah, on, um, on the skiing, they're... Oh, We'll come, I'll come on to that right away, but on the skiing, there's also just, just to quickly finish and summarize, there's a, there's a relay. Uh, so we got to the 10 and the 15 K after that, there's a relay, then there's a team sprint and then there's the mass start. So we can oh, wow. put that sort of to the side. Just Sorry, so, so there's lots of races. Ask, I have to ask, is the relay mixed? Is the relay mixed or is it uh, men run a relay and the woman? In cross country skiing, it's men's four by 10 kilometers and women's four by five kilometers. Oh. So that's not mixed. And the team sprint is two sprint athletes and they're also same sex. Okay. Um, and they, one does the loop and then they tag and then the next one does the loop and they do that six loops. So they do it three times each. Mm -hmm. um, gotcha. So that's more continuous than the other sprint competition. Mm. Um, and how long does the best start? Uh, for men, it's 50K. 50. And for women, it's 30. 30. Yeah, so the 50K takes about two hours if the conditions are, you know, normal, pretty decent. Um, and yeah, the women, it will be slightly under two hours. I mean, that's 30K. And that's the one that Marit Bjergen that we were talking about there won um, at, the, at the last Olympics. And that was classic last time. Uh, that must have been skate last time. It's classic. Hang on a second. Yeah. But it alternates. Hang on, it was classic last time, so it must be freestyle this time. Yeah, mm. because even Iskan and the Finn, he won it. 
at the last Olympics and he's an outstanding classic skier. So he's an interesting one because he's an outstanding classic skier, but never really wins in skate. But his classic skiing is like, he's the guy you want to look at if you want to see how classic skiing should look like. Hmm. But you're right, we should go across, yeah, if you want, we should go across to the battle. And just <laughs> yeah, just that tell out. us a bit about that. I know we're running out of time a bit and I know you're very busy because your athletes are competing tomorrow. So yeah, just run yeah. us through it. Oh, it's, it's fine for me. But yeah, the, it's so interesting with biathlon, the very first event, which is tomorrow, Saturday, uh, that's the mixed relay. So we just said that in cross country, they don't have a mixed relay, but in biathlon, they do have a mixed relay. Um, and that's four by six K. Um, and I had a call actually with one of my PhD students. She's a biathlon specialist. I had a call with her yesterday just to get some of my facts straight because it's it's so complicated, all of the intricacies of the biathlon uh, races so because she i said but marlon why is like is it four by six k it's not always four by six k it depends if the men go first or the women go first and that changes <laughs> from race to race so tomorrow at the olympics it will be woman woman man man and it will be four times six kilometers um and obviously they just skate but i mean the main thing just to kind of summarize all the races the main thing with biathlon is that they always start with their skis. They carry their rifle the whole time on their back. Uh, they set off always with a ski loop first. Then they come into the shooting range and they'll shoot. They'll go off and ski again. They'll come in and shoot. So they shoot at least twice, but most often four times. Um, and that's interspersed with those skiing loops. So there's always one more. And then they always finish up with skiing and then cross the line on their skis. So there's always one more ski loop than there is shooting um about and um yeah so i think that was the main thing i was thinking of um the rifle's got a certain weight it has to be at least three and a half k so it's relatively heavier for the women than for the men um and yeah i mean there's lots of other things i'm sure we'll come on to but they also alternate whether they lie down and shoot or stand up and shoot and they do at least one of each in every competition um but again oftentimes two um, and whether they lie down, stand up alternately or lie down twice and stand up twice depends on the, on the event and the competition. So you'll see when you watch the races, if you really get into it, you'll see all these different permutations and it will blow your mind. But there is a structure to what they're doing, but it's different for every race. And the, the, the targets are the same distance away, but are smaller when, when prone, the lying down. Is that, do I have that right? Because I read something saying that the accuracy is about the same for standing and lying, but the targets aren't the same. Yeah, exactly. It, the diameter is is larger when you're standing up. Mm, yes. Mm. And a missed shot invites a one minute. Well, it's not a standardized um, penalty because they actually have to do a little uh, penalty loop before they get back onto the main course. That's how I recall watching it work. Yeah. And that is different for every single race mm, right. as well, what they have to do. So the penalty differs for every race. So the mixed relay tomorrow, for example, um, and the relays, they're a bit kinder because you're going to have some athletes who are significantly weaker in the team uh, and they try not to make that completely destroy the whole competition, if you know what I mean. Mm. So they're a bit kinder. So with the both the mixed relay, which is on Saturday, um, and then you've got the men's relay and the women's relay. That's 10 days ahead. Um, in both of those races, every athlete, because there's five targets that you have to knock down, regardless, that's always the same. Um, so they come into the shooting range. They'll fire off their five shots. They'll try and hit all five. 
Um, and then on both of the relays, they've got three extra shoot uh, bullets that they can use, but they have to load them up. So the five are already there, do, 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 five, use them up. If they've missed one, let's say, they can take out one of their extra bullets, put loaded up and shoot again. If they miss it again, they can go again. They've got three extra bullets in the relays. If they use all of those up and they've still got targets not hit, then they go into the what we call the strafrunde, the penalty loop. Right. And they have to start going around that as many times as they've missed. But those three extra Scott, uh, shots, bullets, are only available in the relay races. Mm. Um, all of the other races, so the sprint, the pursuit, and the mass start, you take your five shots. If you miss any, however many you miss, that's how many penalty loops you have to do. And there's a third uh, alternative in the longer distance race. So the distance race, or we call it the individual race. I don't know why they call it individual because the sprint is also individual, but let's call it a distance race. Um, then they take their five shots. If they miss any, there's no penalty loop. They just get a one minute penalty time, time penalty per shot missed. So that race is much more effective because a penalty loop doesn't take a minute. It takes less than a minute. So if you miss in the individual distance race, um, it's 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 heavier, it, it's more expensive, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. So there can be more shock results on that. There can be more like surprise results because a really good athlete might all of a sudden just have a bit of a shocker on, on the shooting, and all of a sudden is kind of out of the game because they get this really heavy penalty of if, a minute. If if you get that one minute penalty, do they make you stay in a spot for a minute like they do in a triathlon, or do you? You keep racing, which is then confusing because the viewer is watching two athletes finish together, but one of them's two minutes behind the other one. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. You don't you don't get a rest. Yeah. Um, so you don't get an advantage of getting rested up. You just get added on time at the end. Um, and yeah, there's also that also happens in the mass start because there's only thirty um, mats and ranges. It uh, uh, sort of lanes in in the range. Um, but so for example, in the mass start, no, in the mass start, they have 30 who start, let's say the pursuit. So they have a pursuit race, which is based on the results from the sprint race, um, beforehand, mm. uh, the top six, 60 from the sprint results start the pursuit and they go at like, you know, um, at the time intervals, according to the sprint finish results, mm. but there's only 30 lanes. So if you've got a really tight sprint result. Um, you'll get, and this does happen, you'll get more than 30 athletes come in to the shooting range needing a mat and a place to go. And, and so those ones who are like, you know, standing there waiting and twilling their thumbs, that time gets measured and uh, detracted, like subtracted from their, their time at the end of the race. But it's a bit like you said there, Ross, like they, you don't know that until the end of the race. But, but usually that's the worst athletes because it's the it's the ones that weren't in the top 30. Yeah. So it's usually not a big deal. Do the elite athletes know who's had one-minute penalties? Because I'd hate to be that person skiing with my competitor thinking they've had a two-minute penalty and I'm only on one, but actually I got it wrong. They're on one and so am I. And you don't actually understand who's winning the race yourself. They're pretty good. They don't have radios like you would in cycling, but they get a lot of feedback out on the course. Okay. So you'll see, if you watch the races you'll see that all the coaches are uh, congregated on a sort of hill climb section where the athletes are obviously going a lot slower and can take on board more information. 
Um, and you'll see like all the coaches like running, like sprinting side by side along their athletes, shouting, either just like, hey, 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 up, 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 like, like speed up stuff, encouragement, or it will often so it could be information about how much time they've got, how much like ahead they are, even though it feels like more or less, for example. Yeah. So they do get a, a lot of, they're really good at that. I would say like the coaches are on it, like everyone's on it. They also get feedback information about how they've shot um, on the, the targets, for example. So there's lots of kind of, yeah, to like interaction, I would say, to like information to the athletes on mm. out on the course. When, when I watch biathlon, it always fascinates me to think about the the intersection between the technical skill of shooting and the physiological challenge of being out of breath and and uh, in a state exactly the opposite to what you want to be when you shoot. So I've always wanted to ask someone is, are they much better shooters than in a race situation or are they so well trained and accustomed to it that their shooting ability is relatively unaffected by the physiology and of actually skiing? Yeah, it is, it is affected, but it will be a lot less affected than, an, you know, a beginner or a less elite or like a developmental athlete. So it is affected, but they are able to minimize it. That's for sure. Um, and I was also talking about this to, 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 um, yeah, my PhD student a little bit yesterday. And cause I, I didn't know of any study and I, we don't think that there are any studies that have actually measured that under sort of controlled conditions so that I've got actual, you know, data that I could discuss about how good they are. Um, yeah, in different conditions, because they also train in different conditions. So you've got fully rested, you've got shooting after just low intensity exercise, shooting in a sort of training race environment, and then shooting in an actual race environment. But, but anecdotally, and what we know just from tons and tons of experience of working with these teams, and some of my research colleagues have been kind of head coach of national teams as well. So we've got a lot of kind of in-house information. Um, they do a lot of kind of training races. So in at our stadium where we live, for example, even in the summer on their roller skis. So it'll be the same sort of intensity as a race setup. Um, and in those setups, they're able to shoot or they shoot pretty much as well on their training races in a training environment as they would in a competition environment at kind of World Cup or Olympics. So what they are able to do is handle the pressure if you know what I mean, so that the physiology, physiological impact is about the same and then the shooting performance is about the mm. same. Um, but if you shoot at rest, you will shoot better because um, the body can basically be more still mm. because you don't have high ventilation rates, you don't have the lungs moving around. The heart itself, just the pump, you know, the beating of the heart is quite a large vibration for these athletes with massive stroke volumes mm. and cardiac outputs. Um so that that they need to get into control. So they they hold their breath while they shoot, so that that ventilation. But they've still got their their heart is still beating. There are studies on how much the heart rate drops as they come into the the range and shoot. Amazingly, uh, down to 70 percent. Eh? Mm, they get it low, yeah, yeah, very quickly, and they slow down. So it's very tactical, and um, you know, it's it's a big part of their kind of experience as well. Is how slow can they afford to ski? for those kind of um, that, that amount of distance coming into the shooting range, how slow can they afford to ski before they've come onto the mat itself mm. in order to prepare all of that physiological stuff. Um, and all different ranges and 
stadiums have got different types of entries into the into the um shooting arena into the range if you know what i mean so some is easier to kind of like glide into and be quite flat others you've got to keep on working quite hard before entering the range so yeah there's lots of um yeah small factors to think about there i did read one study where um they compared the very best to the level below so let's say elite versus sub-elite and the thing that was interesting was that the shooting accuracy was quite similar between the groups but the speed with which the elite athletes got their shots off is much quicker so they spend less time achieving the same accuracy which i took to interpret as that they're all quite good at knowing when they can shoot they're quite good at understanding when exactly is the best time to pull the trigger but that the elite athletes just get to that state of of accuracy quicker than the sub elite would, would that interpretation be well off or no um yeah there might be studies showing that um i don't know which one that is specifically you're talking about um there's kind of there's four that um that i think about quite a lot there's there was a phd done over in uh, trondheim in norway with one of the guys who now works with the Norwegian Biathlon Federation. Um, and there's one that we've done out of our centre that's just been published. So all of these are the last few years. And actually those studies show slightly different, that they're all top level. So I don't know how high your elite and sub-elite were. I would imagine the bigger the gap between the athletes, then definitely the timing is more of a factor. But in these four studies, so Harry Luchsinger uh, is the lead author on three of them, uh, and Glenn Bjorklund with us as lead author on the other one, all of those show actually that shooting accuracy um, and skiing speed are about equivalently equal and that they're clearly the most important factors. So the accuracy still is the most important factor together with skiing speed over timing itself. Um, because it's so expensive it's so much more expensive than taking a few more seconds to shoot mm. than to miss, miss a shot sure. um but but definitely shooting speed is like one of the two components of shooting performance it comes down to the shooting speed and the shooting accuracy mm. but the accuracy in terms of overall performance is going to be more important mm. Mm. You, you mentioned but you're right that you mentioned just just a few moments ago how, how they get that heart rate down what what techniques do they use to do that when they're getting into the shooting space i mean they have to they slow down like prior to coming in so it's a little bit like i said it, it's like how hard can they afford to go or not go throughout the whole ski loops so that's it's really difficult to know how they have to control so you might see like a lot of athletes will ski a lot, lot faster on that final loop when they've got no more shooting to do than you've seen them ski on all the other four loops prior to that because they've done that in order to offset, you know, it's, it's a balance. Mm. Um, how slow can I afford to ski in order to keep my personal heart rate below, like as, as, as relatively low as I can? So the better skier you are, the slower you can afford to ski because relatively you're going to be at a lower percent heart rate than everybody else around you kind of thing. So that's one thing. It's just making your skiing better so that you can be at a relatively lower heart rate to stay with the pack. Um, and then it's like, yeah, slowing it down as they come in. And then um, they just have to, like, as soon as they're on the mat, I mean, it's just a training response. There's no special tricks. They don't have any special tricks to, like, get their heart rate lower than but anybody else. They don't else. sort of hyperventilate beforehand so that they can hold their breath for longer or anything like that. No, and I mean, that would like affect their heart as well. So they do hold their breath while they shoot, 
and some of them will hold their breath constantly um, throughout the shots, but some can't kind of necessarily manage that. I think that's quite uncommon. Mm. But um, I guess it's just a training response, really. I don't have any good sort of like scientific answer to that, really. The yeah. problem is, I mean, you could address, you could get yourself into a calm state with breathing, but they're already hyperventilating just to ski. So that's, yeah. that's the challenge is they're so far off homeostasis and balance when they come in there that it's, uh, yeah. So the, the key is, I guess, you just got to change your ceiling so that you can be further from it. And when you say it's a training response, I mean, do they train their ability to be able to stop and get their heart rate down? Like, in other words, do they concentrate on their breathing and they're getting their heart rate down in in training sessions? Yeah. Um, and they'll shoot, you know, they'll. I mentioned some training races before. They will, I think, because we've got a paper with a PhD student I've mentioned and one of my other colleagues, they've got a, a paper um, kind of that's, um that's analyzed the physical training so the ski training and also the shooting training um of the swedish athletes who won medals at pyeongchang for example at the olympic games so that's quite a nice paper with just a, a simple table that talks about the shooting training and about 10 percent. so they take about twenty-two thousand shots per year so it's just a nice table to summarize to get an idea of what they're doing um, and that will be over about 210 sessions. So I'm just like reading from the paper now. So that's about 100 shots per session. And they'll train almost two out of every three days shooting. So it's a lot of shots. Um, and about 10% of that, so 2,400 shots training under stress. So that will be this kind of thing that we're talking about. It will be coming into the range at a very high load, high intensity um, and then working on their breathing and their heart rate and their also their muscular like stability. Um, and that's also a big one, obviously, when they're fatigued, is that it's very difficult to stand still when your muscles are not wanting to hold you still. Um, and then about 10% of their shots will just be for precision, where it'll be kind of at rest. They also do a lot of dry shooting, so it can be in a hotel room or at home or whatever. They'll put like stick up kind of like targets and do dry shooting. So there's a hell of a lot of shots taken and they take them in different scenarios at rest, totally um, dry shooting. And then just in a normal training session. So it might be that they're like, it's a bit more of a lower intensity session. And then these very high intensity training race type sessions. And they do do that quite a lot. And this is, I'm just talking our Swedish team because that's all I've got a great deal of information about. Yeah. Fascinating but stuff. We, but we are good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Kerry, thank you very much for your time. It's been absolutely fantastic talking to you about this because I think my the exponential growth of my knowledge in the last 45 minutes has been amazing. So I'm certainly going to watch the the Winter Olympics with a lot more knowledge and uh, just understanding some of that physiology is yeah remarkable. They're very unique for us here in South Africa because we have no experience of these type of athletes here and you know it is a particular set of skills that they have. Yeah, steep learning curves. So that was, that was great though. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Kerry. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.